European defence gets serious, but Britain wants to be big in Japan. The Afghan interpreter who feels he's being treated like a criminal in the UK and breaking news from that man off sky. I mean, we were clearly seen by uh, by the high-ups uh, in the MOD as a thorough pain in the backside. Jeremy Thompson tells us his war stories. European nations are on course to achieve a 70-year ambition to integrate their defences today, signing a pact between 25 EU governments to fund, develop and deploy armed forces together. The UK isn't joining in, neither is Denmark nor Malta. Well, let's talk to former Defence and Pentagon correspondent for The Times, Michael Evans, and, of course, BFBS Defence analyst Christopher Lee is here as well. Hello to both of you. Um, Michael, does it matter that the UK is not part of this? I think it does. Uh, this is such a political statement, isn't it? Uh, Brexit worries about uh, the Trump administration. So Europe has bound itself together. But as they're doing that, of course, uh, Britain is negotiating to leave the EU. I, I, think it's, I think it is damaging, and I think it's damaging for them as well, because, to be honest, uh, Britain has not unique necessarily capabilities, but they have exceptionally good military capabilities, even now, despite all the cutbacks. And I think they need us as much as, uh, as anyone. And it would be, I think, uh, a weak establishment if we didn't have Britain involved. Having but, of course, we won't be. Having said that, there's always NATO. How does that fit in? How does the United States see this? I don't think, you know, we, we've had this argument for such a long time now. I don't think it will in, in any way necessarily impinge on NATO's capabilities. Or Everyone has said this is supposed to be complementary, not, uh, not a rival to NATO. Let's hope they stick to that. But I think, again, just to mention the Trump administration, not really knowing how uh, the Trump administration will react to whatever happens in Europe over the next uh, 15 years, uh, it's, they've decided that it's better to, to have their own capabilities. Now, whether it works or not, I don't know. They've tried in the past and it hasn't really come to anything. Mm, Christopher Lee, how do you see this? It hasn't come to anything, Mike. It's absolutely right and for lots of reasons. And that is that uh, you won't get everybody who is supposedly signing up is going to agree to do it the way they wish they do it. There is also a sense that they haven't got any central understanding of what's involved. It's not just a question of saying, OK, we are the Europeans. Here we go. You will have, we'll have all the different uh, forces together. Uh, who's going to pay for it? And if they do pay for it, where does the money come from? The money comes from a budget which otherwise might go through into certain NATO uh, parts of what they what they should be budgeting for. But the problem is 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 that they come together. You also have the the thoughts of what can they do? Where is their command system? Where is their command system? Does it take it away from what the NATO command system is? So I think that's right. It, it does matter this. And when you go back, say let's say, to an agreement between the French and the British uh, at Saint-Malo, which has became quite famous, uh, indirectly sort of opposing this whole concept, let us keep it as NATO. Then you've got the, the, the Americans, and they say, well, this is what Donald Trump uh, uh, thinks. Donald Trump's gone in maximum sort of six, seven years from now. You can't think in such short term of what you might understand. And then finally, they say, we want to have something which is very European, so we're not caught out as we were caught out with the Russians actually getting involved with Crimea, mm -hmm. etc. What do they think that this organisation, 
uh, with all its members have signed up to say, come on, chaps, here come the Russians, they're going to Crimea, we're going to do something about it. No way is there any history that suggests that they would have done. Mike Evans, do you think this is uh, just adding yet more European bureaucracy to the military now? Well, I mean, it's, it's absolutely inevitable. Uh, Chris is right to say, you know, who's going to do the planning, who's going to be in charge? Uh, this is very much a, a, a French and German initiative. They've been pushing for it like mad. So in that sense, you know, they both, well, the French have got very capable uh, military military forces. The Germans are sort of way behind on, on defence spending. But yes, of course, it'll add more and more layers of bureaucracy. And when you've got 25 countries, all of whom have their say, then, um, you know, it's, uh, it raises a lot of doubt in the future. And, and as Chris said, you know, if we have another Crimea, Crimea. There's no way that the European Defence Army, or whatever they're going to call it, is going to go battling into the front line. And obviously, America, NATO will have to be the ones uh, playing the role. Christopher Lee, uh, do you think um, this is going to mean anything in terms of increased defence spending across Europe? Because we already see that allies in NATO don't really, most of them don't meet the 2% GDP spending, do they, on defence? You spend what your Chancellor tells you you've got to spend. And no chancellor is going to sit there at the moment and say, "Oh, that's all right. Then we'll just put it into the into the NATO into the European budget." And then NATO comes along and says, "Hey, we ought to be spending more as an individual country." And people become quite schizophrenic about this. They start, "Which country are we? Are we the European country or are we in NATO?" The truth is, the front line of Europe is America's front line. If you're going to have NATO, you need America and not forgetting, say, Canada. And what you're going to have in this is something that, in fact, we don't need other than to satisfy, and not unreasonably to satisfy, uh, certain European concepts of what NATO should be for. The money can only go into not necessarily one pot, but it's only the same amount of money. And that money, once you start splitting it, you're in big trouble. So, Mike Evans, you're saying something that we don't necessarily need. How do you think that Britain should be reacting to this pact? Uh, well, it's a bit difficult for Britain, isn't it? Because, you know, we're, we're not in the pact because we're not involved in, in this. So we're leaving the EU. So we, we can't put any demands down. But I think, uh, you know, we, we're still a prominent member of NATO and we'll obviously will remain so. Uh, we will still have a voice in Europe on the military side, whether we're part of the EU or not. Therefore, we have a role to play in uh, trying to at least help uh, talk about or construct this uh, new organisation. I think we have a lot that we can we can give them in terms of experience. But will they want to listen to us? That's hmm. the question. Uh, Christopher Lee, uh, Britain, meanwhile, has the Foreign Secretary and the Defence Secretary meeting their Japanese counterparts today. What will they be talking about? Well, Tarakono. Uh, Tarakono is the Foreign Minister. He is. He, he brings quite an intellectual side to the great discussion which is going on at, the, at Greenwich at the moment at the, at the Maritime Museum, and that is what is practical to do about uh, North Korea. I mean, obviously, uh, Japan very much on the sidelines uh, in, in, in the big picture because we think of America versus North Korea. And we have but the US Secretary of State Rex Tillerson offering talks with North Korea now this week. And this was an idea that Tarakono was actually pr sort of promoting. And he was saying some time ago, I mean, this is just after the election, it was a bit recent election in Japan. He was saying, give the uh, North Koreans the opportunity 
to have talks because that's what they want. We've got to get realistic about this. Uh, it's Onori Onodera, who is the uh, the defence minister. He's saying, my part in this, or the United Kingdom, and my part in this, is to do what the, the British did uh, last year, and that's take part in an exercise that involves Japan. In other words, to show regionally that there is an extension of the whole European military side and that we can bring it round to Japan and we can actually not form, form a threat, but to show that it's a bit more than North Koreans imagine. But the biggest story really has to be, and that is that Tillerson has said, yeah, we think we can do public public discussions. I We turn up. So you be quiet for a couple of months and we can do this. Trouble is, he's got to tell his president to be as quiet. All right, Chris Willey, stay with us. Mike Evans, thank you for your time today. Sit Rep with Kate Still to come, what tickles the troops? Is forces humour different? And the Royal Navy says goodbye to Atherston and Corn. PFBS Sit Rep. An Afghan man who worked as an interpreter for the British Army in Afghanistan has told Forces News he feels the Home Office has treated him like a criminal as he fights to try and claim asylum in the UK. Hafizullah Husankal suffered serious injuries during four years working for US and British forces. His lawyers are now seeking a judicial review to allow him to stay here. It comes as the Defence Minister Mark Lancaster said an MOD scheme to relocate Afghan interpreters to the UK is fit for purpose. Well, Sean Grezchek went to meet Hafiz and joins me now from Westminster. Sean, hello. Take us through what Hafiz's role was in Afghanistan. Well, Kate, he was out on the front line in Afghanistan, one of many Afghans risking their lives on a daily basis interpreting for British soldiers. He worked for the British military between 2010 and 2012, but worked for NATO uh, before that uh, from 2008 onwards. Now, despite suffering injuries during his time as an interpreter... He survived, but now he says he's living in turmoil as he waits to see if he can be granted asylum here. And while he's waiting, uh, he volunteers in Derby, helping to organise food and clothing for refugees. He's arrived in the UK uh, back in January 2016. He's been fighting to stay here ever since. But for the last two years, he tells me he's been in and out of three detention centres, held alongside criminals and handcuffed while his claim is considered by the Home Office. I put my life in risk to make their forces safe, to risk their forces' life. And the way they treat me, they just treat me as animals, as criminals. I lost my country, I lost my family, I lost all, all, all my life. I just make a journey to come to this country, to make a better life. So they treat me like that. You've told me you've had lots of death threats from the Taliban. Yeah. Do you think they'll kill you if you go back to Afghanistan? Exactly, yeah. Because the country is now turning up to the Taliban. So, Sean, is that why he wants asylum here in the UK? Well, Kate, he actually initially tried to get asylum in Austria, which was the first European country that he was fingerprinted in when he fled Afghanistan because of those death threats. Um, They denied him asylum, so that's the point where he chose to try and seek asylum uh, in the UK. Hafiz says the Home Office want to return him to Austria because that's where he was 
initially fingerprinted, but he says that they will just send him straight back to Afghanistan. And as we heard there, uh, he is convinced that uh, he would be killed if he returned home. Now, I contacted the Home Office. I asked them how long he will have to wait to find out what the final decision is. There's been quite a long-winded legal battle going on behind the scenes here. They say they don't routinely comment on individual cases, so it's very much unclear what the timescale on a decision is. Hafiz's legal team are now trying to bring a judicial review to help him remain here. He says he's very grateful that he's actually got the support of a lot of the soldiers who he used to work alongside, but he is full of frustration and had this message for the government. The government should just look after those people who just help them. And that's my kindly message to the government. We did help them, honourable. We show our honour how we're doing. We saved our forces. And Sean, all this comes as Labour has criticised the government over its policies for Afghan interpreters who served on the front line alongside British troops. Yes, that's right. It follows an update from Defence Minister Mark Lancaster on Tuesday. The MOD has faced a number of accusations that it hasn't done enough to help its former Afghan staff. Mr Lancaster saying the MOD schemes have relocated more than 385 former staff and their families to the UK, with another 60 families expected to relocate over the next year or so, and said that the schemes being used remain fit for purpose and properly meet our responsibilities. So why has there been criticism then? Well, the key is that reference to being fit for purpose. The issue is that there are lots of different schemes in place, uh, one for up to the end of 2012 and for January 2013 onwards. Uh, The latter scheme relates to after the withdrawal of combat operations, of course, and looks at whether Afghan interpreters living in Afghanistan are at risk. Mark Lancaster's statement confirmed under that scheme that not a single person has been relocated to the UK. All right, Sean Grescheck, thank you. Now, Jeremy Thompson's been described as a pioneer of breaking news. In his 50-year career as a journalist, he's probably been to more war zones than your average British soldier. Here he is broadcasting live for Sky News from Kosovo in 1999 as British peacekeepers arrived. He was the first correspondent to do so. All really we can see is the empty buildings and and most of them seem to have been uh, broken here. You see broken windows, the the, uh, Gurkha backpacks in the foreground, but broken windows, the spilt oil on the ground. It looks as if there was a pretty hasty retreat. And um, (laughs) here we are, we'll just have a look up. There's uh, the helicopter still going in past us here up the road uh, towards Pristina. There's been a steady procession of... uh, Chinooks and Pumas and Apache helicopters all morning ferrying in the hardware they're going to need for the operation to hold the road up towards uh, up towards Pristina. Well, now that he's retired from his role as early evening anchor at Sky, he's written his memoirs. I asked him how frontline journalism has changed during his time at the forefront of rolling news. I think it's become more difficult, more dangerous and more important. I think that journalists have become much more targets in the last 20 years, really since the the Yugoslav war in the 90s, um, when the two sides were very close. They were from the same communities, often related. It was a nasty, vicious war amongst neighbours. And we, the journalists, got caught up in it in a way that I hadn't really seen before. And the two sets of combatants would see that we believe we were either the mouthpiece for their side or the other side, and therefore we became 
journalists became much more targets. So having press on your vest didn't really help much anymore. And I've seen that then reflected in other places around the world. So it is more dangerous. But in this confusing world of fake media and the white noise of voices that you're not certain of their veracity, I think it's more and more important that journalists are out there in the front line trying to tell the truth and trying to tell people what is happening in their world. And you're credited as being the first journalist to broadcast live in 1991 from Kosovo when peacekeepers went in. How do you think being able to broadcast live from a war zone, from the front line, has changed the way people see war and changed perhaps war itself? It's difficult to know how much it's changed it or whether it's just frightened people that we've taken them so close to it and they've lived every step of it, which in the past... When you think it wasn't that long ago that the Falklands War was on, 1982, and then the Ministry of Defence had enormous control. The government had enormous control over the message, over the information. They could dictate when it was sent out, what was sent out. In the 30-odd years since then, the 35 years since then, governments really find it very hard to control the message anymore because we are there on the front line with satellites that allow us to go instantly. And alongside us, quite often, citizen journalists with cameras and uh, and uploading their their cell phones, their video phones, it, it's very hard to stop the information coming out, but it's hard to tell what's true and what's not. Yes, and when you're talking about that, when you have governments actively trying to put out false messages, how does a journalist combat that? I think that's the one of the hardest things of all. They, you've got to find a way of the, getting the viewers and the listeners to trust you. And I think... The stations that have been around longer, you'd hope that they are still seen as mainstream deliverers of credible information. But I think we're going to have to work even harder to make sure we get that message out and people learn to trust us. Because even in our own Western democracies, like the United States, we've seen the president, Donald Trump, pointing the finger at credible networks like the BBC, like CNN, like grown-up networks that we've always believed in, and calling them fake news. What are the what are the public meant to make of that? So it's not just the authoritarian, totalitarian regimes that are putting out the odd messages. It can be Western democracies as well. It's a confused world. You describe yourself as a maverick and um, when you're reporting from war zones, you're very careful not to take, to take the embed option, to do it on your own, to be independent. But in a way, this was seen by the commanders in the UK as, as being a bit painful. They didn't like the idea that you were, you were doing your own thing. But then you got quite close to British soldiers in 2003 in Iraq who actually helped you evade the, the bosses. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we were clear Clearly seen by uh, by the high ups uh, in the MOD as a thorough pain in the backside, and uh, Mavericks is not what they wanted. They again wanted control. They wanted to control the message. There is no doubt about that. So they formed a hub where they were going to have all the main journalists, and they were going to drive them around and show them what they wanted to show them, and pretty much try and control when those stories came out, how they came out, what they showed them. So having a bunch of Mavericks driving around the desert telling it how it was, was Mm. not exactly their dream. But because of circumstances, because 
Fellow journalists from other networks like Terry Lloyd from ITN, an old mate of mine, tragically got killed on the first day that we all went into Iraq. Um, we were much more cautious and decided to press on, but felt we needed to be fairly close. So we got in, if you like, in the slipstream of the Desert Rats, whose commanding officer very kindly turned a blind eye. And you it, got warned when they were coming looking well, for yeah, the authorities, it, I do the think MOD. It, I do think it helped that my technicians put up a very nice dish and we managed to show them the Five Nations rugby at the time. <laughs> uh, I think it was England, Ireland. And that, a lot, of the, a lot of the lads in uniform thought that was pretty good. And we also sort of put messages on from home. So we won them over a bit. So when the, when the, the hub, the MOD, came hunting for us, they, they, our lads from the Desert Rats said, just disappear for a day get lost in the desert boys and we'll tell you when to come back so it's very kind yeah so um we hope we played that well when when you've seen the highs and lows of humanity and of existence and have the adrenaline rush that you get from those kind of situations when you're back in normal civilian life do you miss it um yes at times i mean i i think you have to compartmentalise to an extent. You can't live on adrenaline all the time. I mean, uh, it, you know, you don't go seeking trouble, but as a journalist, you want to be at the top stories. You want to be doing the biggest stories in the world. I mean, that was what drove me on. Sometimes you had to stick your nose and a bit too far uh, into dangerous situations, but I can't say I went seeking it, and it's not nice, and I always try to remind myself that to not feel scared anymore is when you should feel scared because if you lose the ability to sense danger and not have that adrenaline running around then you're in real trouble so I went into a lot of situations and I know I was scared but it, being scared probably helped to keep me and my teams alive but in the end, if you bring back the story and people react to it and it can change things and it can change opinions, then it is usually worth the effort. Jeremy Thompson, whose book Breaking News is out now. Now, what makes the forces laugh? Hollywood has brought some of Britain's greatest battles to the silver screen and completely ruined them. So now it's time to turn the tables as an all-British cast, make an all-British farce of the American War of Independence, starring Nigel Farage as the Boston Tea Party rebel. Did somebody say independence? No, 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 let me speak. It's time for the United States to take back control. So, chuck all that foreign tea in the harbour and let's get a good old-fashioned pint out. <laughs> yeah, mine's a large one, barkeep. Yes, I'm drinking and yes, I'm bragging. Alan Carr as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army, George Washington. What was that? 4,000 British soldiers have landed on Boston. <laughs> I've got to say, no, that's mental. Lucky Boston, I say. <laughs> that was a clip from the award-winning BFBS radio comedy Damn the Torpedoes, produced by Alison Pritchard and Kieran Productions. A Christmas special was recorded this week in front of a live audience. Let's talk now to the show's executive producer, Richard Hatch, and also Barry Castanola, a stand-up comedian who's performed all over the world for the forces, including Afghanistan. Uh, Richard, is the forces' sense of humour different? Oh, this is a, 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 an IED of a question to start with. Um, see, I think it, you almost have to 
asked the question, what makes the forces laugh? And, and I don't know whether you'd agree with this, Barry, but I think... I think it's anything. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't pigeonhole all the forces as saying, well, they all like edgy gallows humour. They all like Frankie Boyle. You know, you ask the forces. They, I bet half of them love Michael McIntyre. You know, it's it's you can't pigeonhole people like that. What that, do you, th- what do you think? No, I, I think it's a common misconception. Before I did the gigs, when I was first offered to do CSE gigs, my first thought, if I'm honest, was like, oh, I'm not sure if uh, the style of sort of jokes that I do or the style of humour, which is sort of fairly storytelling and anecdotal, and uh, you know, whether where people will be up for that. And you have this impression because obviously, you know, people like Jim Davis and sort of more old school comedians. But of course, you look at the ages of, of people in the forces, uh, and they've grown up with the, the same humour as us, you know, uh, and uh, and and that sort of more old fashioned, just joke telling, mother law type hmm. jokes or, or 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 even possibly uh you know racist or sexist stuff um doesn't 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 fly i don't think um, and uh, i remember being out in in hellman um uh, and talking to a couple of marines and, and one of them was quoting bill hicks who you know who and saying it was, it was his favorite comedian who's a, a you know famously very very left-wing anti-establishment comic and the other one said uh, his fa- fa- uh, favorite comic was shappy or sandy hmm. uh, yeah. so you know this it's, it's a real wide range i do you know i do think that you know when you when you've when you've got a big group together i think one of the big differences in the military is that people are used to just um you know taking the mick out of each other and beasting each other and <laughs> so so you know they know it's done with with affection so uh, i think it's it's maybe hard to offend uh, uh a military audience but um have you, have uh, you but, done that barry ever Probably, <laughs> not, not, not intentionally though. But but you know, when you, uh, what, what I always like when if you're hosting a show and then you you get to if you've got a big group and they're all from the same unit and they all know each other, it's get a bit of information on them as well, just because it makes it more personal about about them. Uh, so so that that can be quite fun when you've got some specific information on people. But it but it's still it's very light-hearted rather than ever you know anything sort of singling people out for for bullying or anything. You know. See, see, Barry, uh, it's it's like I always think of the of the military as. Uh, as a gang and then within that gang there are loads of other tribes aren't there so you've got, you've got your three services and then within that you've got all the different units you've got all the different regiments and squadrons and all of that have their own banter I mean the banter is relentless mm. isn't it yeah, absolutely, and and in the same way as uh, as, as any group, whether it, you know whether it be uh, you know uh, in, in a in a, f- a football team, you can imagine the sort of banter they would have, and uh, and likewise um, in in, a, in an office. Um, you know, in in a, in a bank, you know, it, 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 it's just finding that sort of level, and and, he, and, he, and even with um, decompression, you, you know, it, it could change. You could be out there for seven nights doing different shows every night. One night you might have infantry coming through where they're very young, um, uh, and then the next night you might have a, a you know pilots and, and medics. So it's it's uh, it's such a broad church in the military, and and, he, so, and even within the three the, the three services, you, you know, you got differences in humour between the uh, obviously the RAF, Navy, and Army. Barry, have you ever got it monumentally? wrong um have you ever died on stage as it were um <laughs> no i don't know i see what in, in terms of sort of getting information and dips from people uh that it, it's always slightly a higher strategy because sometimes uh, you might be revealing something that <laughs> the rest of them didn't know uh, for example or um uh, or, or the worst one actually is is when you told a story that, that only three people know about so mm-hmm. you know, oh yeah well, i heard about corporal Williams, who did this, and everyone's like, oh, I didn't know about that. So obviously, you know, you're not related to it because that's the main thing you need to do with with comedy is 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 obviously is make it relatable in in some sense. And 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 you know, another thing is is I, I found that really works well is just finding out those 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 weird processes and 
idiosyncrasies of the military that, that, that people can relate to and pointing them out as an outsider and going, oh, it's weird you do this or what about, why do you have to check your, your bags in 12 hours before in, uh, in Afghanistan or whatever, whatever those things might be because I think they're like, oh yeah, he, you know, he, he knows about us. So yeah. I, I think finding that, finding that sort of humour there and, and sort of shining a light on some of the, uh, the ridiculous elements of, of uh, whether it be discipline or process or whatever it might be. Richard, you've done <laughs> your Christmas special. Um, when's it out and did it go down Ooh. well? It went down really well, yeah, in front of a, a live studio audience at the RADA studios just off the Tottenham Court Road. Yeah, it was a smash hit, I think they say. Uh, it's mm. out Saturday 23rd of December, 1.30, Sunday, Christmas Eve, 4.30 and on Boxing Day at 3.30. And there, gentlemen, we must leave it. Richard Hatch and Barry Gastonola, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Finally, Christopher, HMS Atherston and HMS Corn are being decommissioned today. What kind of value do these ships have for the Royal Navy? Well, they're, they're MCMVs, my counter measures, you used to call them, you know, mine hunters, mine sweepers in the old days. Uh, enormous, enormous value. Uh, they're not just sort of tootling around British ports, the Channel, etc. They're out in the Gulf. You've got to get one of those things there. They roll on wet grass, I tell you. And when they're there, they're clearing the waters of mines. Also, uh, you've got to remember the value of mines. Somebody said, we just mined that stretch of water. doesn't matter if they have or not. You think they have, so they've got to do it. Unfortunately, they're being cut back. Uh, and it's uh, a lot of people who have been in that trade of mine countermeasures will tell you it's unfortunate. And there we will leave it this week. Uh, join the conversation. Christopher and I are live on the Forces News Facebook page on Thursdays from about 3.15 in the afternoon UK time. Today's video is already up. Or you can tweet us at BFBS Sit Rep, uh, Sit Rep and subscribe to the podcast. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. I'll be back same time next week. Bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.